Well, good morning. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at EBC, and it is a joy and a privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. Well, words are powerful, aren't they? Words can kill. They can give life. Uh, Words can poison. Words can be fruitful. Words can deconstruct. And words can construct. Words can devour and devastate. Or they can bring peace. And they can bring healing. Words can abuse. And words can affirm and adore. Words are powerful. They have value. And in short, words matter. And we all recognize that speaking words is what separates us from the rest of creation, right? What we're doing now, what I'm doing now, separates us from the rest of creation. Animals don't speak like this. Plants don't speak like this. The universe doesn't speak like this. Humans are given the unique gift and ability to speak words and to withhold words. And this is why one of the most haunting things for a human to experience is the absence of words. Words like, I love you. Thank you. Words are powerful, and the way we say them matters. You've heard the expression, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Is that true? Is that true? No, it's not true. If it was true, your week would have gone a little differently. The divorce rate would be lower. There would be less work drama, wouldn't there? There would be almost no need for counseling. Words are powerful because they powerfully impact our relationships. Fundamentally, relationships can't exist without words. And at the end of the day, we are built upon words and our relationships are built upon words. Words are central to our identity. They direct our existence and they affect our relationships, particularly our relationship with our maker, God. What do words have to do with our relationship with him? Everything, everything. We worship a God who speaks He has revealed himself through words and he has created us as image bearers made in his image to speak words to one another and also speak words to him in and through prayer. And in our passage this morning, we are going to unpack the powerful words of one of the most beautiful, glorious, helpful, instructive, Jesus glorifying prayers in all of the New Testament. So if you have your Bible, please open it to the letter of Ephesians. It's a little over halfway through the New Testament. This morning we are continuing our summer series in this book. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one under a chair near you. You could find the letter of Ephesians on page 917. We'll be working through Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, and you'll be helped to keep your Bible open this morning to this passage. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. Please follow along as I read. 
For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints." And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's word to the church. All glory be to God. Let's say that together. All glory be to God. Amen. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to work through the nitty-gritty of this prayer. Let's pray. Lord, reveal yourself to us this morning. Open our eyes the eyes of our hearts, renew our minds, give us spiritual sight to see and behold the glory of Christ and strengthen your imperfect and weak servant now, O Lord. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray and all of God's people said, amen. Well, let me briefly reorient us to the context and message of the letter of Ephesians for just a moment. Ephesus was a major city, ethnically and culturally diverse. At the very heart of the city was the temple of Artemis. The temple held the city together. It gave the city unity and meaning, and it shaped the character of the people of Ephesus. Ephesus was really a city of worship, marked by its allegiance to political power, as well as salvation through sacred idols and materialism. And its people longed for and prayed for the good life through these deaf and dead means. But within this pagan city shine the glorious light of a true and better salvation and a true and better Savior, Jesus. And there is a theme that is over and under every verse in the book of Ephesians, every verse in this letter, and it's this. Here's the big picture theme. Ephesians is a book about the wisdom, mystery, and glory of Christ revealed through the people of Christ, the church. Ephesians is a book about the wisdom, mystery, and glory of Christ revealed through the people of Christ, the church. And the letter breaks down into two sections. Chapters 1 through 3 tell us who the church is in Christ. And then chapters 4 through 6 tell the church how they ought to live in Christ as the church. And in chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, we heard Paul's praise and worship song about how the triune God has gloriously redeemed and blessed his church in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And in our passage this morning, Paul moves us further in to worshipful benediction and Christ-exalting intercession. He presses us further into praise as he presses us further into prayer and shows us how praise and prayer are simpatico, go hand in hand in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church. And so if you're taking notes this morning, here's the big idea of Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. Here it is. Christian prayer is filled with benediction, intercession, and exaltation of Christ. Christian prayer is filled with benediction, intercession, and exaltation of Christ. And in our text this morning, we see this made clear in Paul's heart and posture toward the church and the words of his prayer for the church. And that's our outline. We're going to look at Paul's posture toward the church in verses 15 and 16. And then we're going to look at Paul's prayer for the church in verse 17 through 23. Point one, Paul's posture toward the church. Look with me once again at verses 15 through 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. When good news comes, how do you respond? When your child or grandchild is born, when your team wins, when that long-awaited vacation comes, when you close on that desired house, when you finish that degree or get that job that you have been wanting, how do you respond? You respond with thanksgiving. And this is Paul's posture in these verses. He is filled with thankfulness. He is filled with a benediction, a benediction that started back in verse 3 of this chapter. Now, benediction is not a common modern word that we typically use, and yet at the end of each service, we typically say, hear now this benediction. So let me just briefly define what a benediction is. A benediction is a blessing, an expression of thankfulness. It is a blessing and expression of thanksgiving. And Christian prayer is always filled with benediction, brothers and sisters. It is always filled with blessing and thanksgiving. This is what we see in Paul's words and posture toward the church. He is filled with blessed thankfulness for them. Thankfulness for what God has done for the church and what God is doing in the church. And so he writes, verse 15, for this reason, referring to all he has written thus far in verses 1 through 14 about how the church is blessed and chosen and predestined and adopted and redeemed and forgiven and united and saved and sealed in Christ by the power of the Spirit. Paul says, for this reason and because of your faith in Christ and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. These words parallel Paul's words in Colossians 1 verses 3 through 4. He writes, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. We also see these words in Philemon. 
In Philemon, he writes, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. This is just two parallel passages of many that express Paul's heart of thanksgiving for the church. Paul's prayers are always overflowing. His posture is always overflowing with thanksgiving when the church is marked by faith and love. And make no mistake, Paul is not speaking of a generic faith, a faith that is meh or blind or inactive or passive. No, he is speaking of active faith, active trust in Jesus in the church. He's also not speaking of a generic or abusive or preference-based love, but rather a love that is grounded in the word and in the word made flesh, Jesus. Paul is moved to benediction here in these verses, to thanksgiving because of the faith, love, and vitality of the church in Ephesus. And I wonder if Paul wrote a letter to the church in Edgewood, to the church of EBC, of Edgewood Bible Church, what would he say? Would he say, oh, EBC, I have heard of your faith and love for all the saints, and I give unceasing thanks to God for you. If Paul walked into this worship service now, what would he see and say? If Paul visit one of our care groups or equipping classes, what would he see and say? If Paul walked into one of our elder meetings or men's book studies or one of our ladies' Bible studies or our college and career group, what would he see and what would he say? If Paul was to visit one of our summer park playdates or park meetups, what would he see and what would he say? If Paul sat in on one of our one-to-one discipleship relational conversations or dinner between two families in the church or two individuals in the church, What would Paul see and what would he say? This passage leads us to a healthy examination of our own faith and of our own love for the whole church. Beloved, we can be the most theologically literate church. We could be the most doctrinally sound church in all of the region. We could have all the ministries firing on all cylinders We could be pro-life, pro-biblical marriage, pro-biblical family, pro-apologetics, pro-Christian education, pro-homeschooling, public school, private school, you name it. But if we have not love for one another, we have nothing. Writing to the church in Corinth, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. What kind of love? A love that is sacrificial, enduring, that does not seek its own preferences, but seeks the preferences of others. A godly, enduring, unstoppable, never giving up love that is intimately tied to our faith in Christ and our gratitude for the church. A love that is for all the saints, not just our clique or those in our age and stage, but for all the church. So how is your faith 
in Christ and love for all the saints here at EBC? Are you a thankful, committed member that is stirring others up to love and good works and seeking the spiritual good of others in this church? How often do you hear of someone else's faith, as Paul did, and rejoice at what God is doing in and through them? Do you regularly stop, remember others, and pray, giving thanks for the faith and love you see in others here at EBC? I hope that you would pick up our member prayer guide, if you haven't already, and pray through it weekly. You could pray something like this over each face, each name within that prayer guide. Say, Lord, thank you for the faith and love I see in him or her. Help it to increase and use me as a means of deep faith and deep love here in the life of BBC toward them. Well, here in Ephesians 1, 15 and 16, we see Paul's posture of thankfulness for the church and toward the church and his encouragement to us to have the same. In these verses, Paul encourages us to be present with one another. It's assumed, but a church that's marked by faith and love is present with one another. To have a committed, other-centered, and thankful posture toward one another. And he has encouraged us to pray for one another constantly. I love that word. I, I love that word, constantly. It just kind of throws it in there. We are encouraged to pray with benediction, with blessed thankfulness, constantly, without ceasing for others around us. Do you pray in this way? Do you have this posture toward the church? This text cut me wide open, and I pray that it cuts you wide open. May Paul be our model and motivator to a thankful posture toward the church, and may we use our words to speak to one another in faith and love constantly. Well, Paul doesn't stop there. He continues on in offering a prayer for the church. This brings us to point two, Paul's prayer for the church. Let's start in verse 16 and read through the rest of the chapter once again. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's a story of a young man that dates back to 2007 who was unhitching a trailer. And he was unhitching, as he was unhitching this trailer, the trailer began to slide away down a steep embankment. The young man had limited knowledge of just how swiftly this trailer would slide away. 
He had no hope or the ability to stop the trailer. And yet, in his own finite strength and fictitious power, this young man grabbed a hold of the trailer and devastated his lower back. I'll let you put two and two together to figure out who the young man was. But here's the point. His lack of knowledge, his faulty hope, and his limited power was on full display. He needed a better knowledge, a better hope, and a better power. For on his own, he was foolish, hopeless, and utterly powerless. Now, as, you, as we have seen in this passage, Paul has heard of the redemption and of the strong faith and love of the church in Ephesus, and he prayed faithfully and constantly for that to continue. But why? Why would Paul need to remember and pray for the church constantly? Because Paul knows that our knowledge, hope, and power is often weak. And that our faith and love often slides away like that trailer did. And it can be cold, fickle, and evasive. See, we have the uncanny ability, don't we, to lack belief and fall out of love just as quickly as we believed and fell in love. Paul is aware of this. And there's another apostle who would later write a warning of this to the church at Ephesus as well as to the church in Edgewood, us, and that comes in Revelation chapter 2. So keep your hand in Ephesians 1 and turn to Revelation chapter 2 with me for just a moment. Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. At the very center of John's words to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, we read these words, I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. How does that happen? How does that happen? The church had abandoned its love for Christ, for the gospel, and for those in Christ, one another. And if we rewind back to Ephesians 1, we see that Paul is aware of this, that this could happen. 
He's aware that the church of yesterday and today, the church of Ephesus and the church of Edgewood, need strength, endurance, hope, and power. And so he intercedes for the church in Ephesus. He intercedes for the church in chapter 1, verses 17 through 23. Now, like the word benediction, the word intercession is also not so common. It's more archaic, less modern. And yet intercession is such an important word and concept. In short, intercession happens when one group or person intervenes or mediates on behalf of another group or person. And this is what Paul does here. He intercedes. He prays on behalf of the church at Ephesus before God. He prays to God. He pleads with God and petitions, intercedes before God and asks him for three things. He asks that they would know God, that they would know hope, and that they would know power. That they would know God in verse 17 through the first half of 18. That they would know hope, the second half of verse 18. And that they would know power, verse 19 through 23. Being encouraged by the church's faith and love and being filled with thankfulness for them and warning them to not lose that faith and not lose that love. And knowing our propensity to lose our first love and go adrift, Paul prays that the church would know God, know hope, and know power. So let's look at the first part of that prayer there in, in verse 17. Let's look at the first part of Paul's prayer for the church, to know God. Look with me again in verse 17 through half of 18. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. First, notice this verse's Trinitarian form. Much like the whole chapter, it has a Father, Son, and Spirit pattern. See, we pray to the Father of glory through the Son by the power of the Spirit. This is the pattern of all Christian prayer. But also notice the words, the phrases of Paul's prayer there to our triune God. He prays that the church would have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And where do we receive wisdom and revelation or truth? From God's word. Beloved, we grow in faith and love as we grow in the knowledge of God by growing in the knowledge of God's word. For the word is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As it says there in 2 Timothy 3, the word, as the pastoral author of Hebrews 4 says, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures and stands forever. His word will never pass away. This is what we read in Matthew 24. And as the psalmist says, God's word is upright, perfect, and proves true. It gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And I know we've all been there, right? We've all been there. We're up in the middle of the night, in the darkness, making our way for a snack or making our way to the restroom, fumbling about, 
helpless, powerless, until the lights flipped on and then we could see clearly what is in front of us. The word is our lamp and our light in this life. And brothers and sisters, until the Holy Spirit removes the scales from our eyes and turns the lights on in our dim hearts and our dim minds, we're helpless, we're in darkness. Because here's the thing, it's not simply enough to have words on a page. It's not enough. We must be given illuminated eyes to see the beauty and the glory and the light of God's word by the spirit of wisdom. And so Paul prays that those in the church would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. What does Paul mean? Does the heart have eyes? Spiritually speaking, yes. Spiritually speaking, yes. The eyes of our hearts are naturally dim and dark, fixed on seeking the things, the idols, the loves of this world that bring fleeting happiness. In the words of John Calvin, the heart is an idol factory. Its eyes are often fixed on things that build us up only to watch us Humpty Dumpty. See, our hearts are not lifted up often. Our hearts are not naturally lifted. Our eyes are not lifted too high. We don't occupy ourselves with things that are too great or too marvelous. We settle for the natural when we have been given the supernatural. But God has truly revealed who he is in his word and he has shown us in a a better way. But we must have the glasses, the bivocals of wisdom and of revelation and illumination to see him rightly and to know him rightly. Notice how these phrases, spirit of wisdom, revelation, and the eyes of hearts being enlightened culminate in the knowledge of God. That's what we see there at the end of verse 17. Beloved, the Christian life begins and ends with the knowledge of God. The Christian life begins and ends with the knowledge of God. And without the spirit... We cannot know God. We are fully dependent upon him for this work. And so we are to regularly pray, pray constantly, just as Paul does here. Spirit, give us wisdom, revelation, and eyes to see the truth and beauty of God. Help us to know him and to know the hope to which we have been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And that brings us to the second part of Paul's prayer for the church to know hope. Look with me at the second half of verse 18. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? The spirit opens our eyes to the truth of God's word and opens our eyes to the truth of our hope in Christ and the gospel. See, hope is more than a word or a concept. Hope is a person. Christ is hope embodied. And the church is sovereignly called to him as our hope. And so, beloved, when you received Christ, When you receive Christ, we receive hope in and through him. When we receive Christ, we receive the hope of Ephesians 1, 1 through 13, that we are blessed to saved, to sealed in the spirit. What grace 
and what immeasurable hope. And just as Paul prayed for the church to know hope, we are to intercede and pray for one another that we would know the hope to which we have been called and the riches of his glorious inheritance. This language of this section of of Paul's prayer is really fascinating. It speaks of our inheritance and hope in the gospel, but it also speaks about how we are an inheritance. Did you notice the language of the prayer? We are, we actually have an inheritance and hope in the gospel, but it also speaks of how we are an inheritance. So what is Paul saying here? Well, if you are in Christ, then you are a valuable part of his body, a sheep of his pasture. You've been bought with a price, bought by his blood. And on the last day, the church will not only receive its imperishable, unfading, and unfading, and un, un, uh, undefiled un- inheritance in Christ, but we will also be presented to Christ as a bride, as a gift, as an inheritance for eternity. In this life, there are many things that we can place our hope in, career, family, bank accounts, hobbies, a nation. But Paul prays that we would know a better hope, that we would hope in Christ. Well, lastly, let's look at the third part of Paul's prayer for the church to know power, to know power. Ephesus was a dark place. Again, it was a city of sorcery, of necromancy, of magic, of materialism. And though there are some stark differences between Ephesus and Edgewood, the Pacific Northwest is is a dark place. As this region and world groans for redemption, as it decays, it is becoming a darker and darker place. The true church is becoming more and more marginalized. It's getting harder and harder to be a Christian. It's getting harder and harder to live out biblical principles in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, and even in some of our own homes. And though there was no golden age, in our Western history or world history, it seems that the world has been and is becoming more and more of a scary place. And so what do Christians need to hear more than anything? What do Christians who are prone to unbelief, prone to fear, frustration, Christians who are longing for Christ to return, what do Christians need to hear when the darkness is growing and growing and growing? We need to grasp the immeasurable greatness and power of God. In a world of big problems, we need and have a bigger God. One who sovereignly reigns even in the midst of the darkest of circumstances. We need a present and perfectly exalted Savior. One whose strength, might, greatness, and power is worthy of our praise and prayer. 
Paul points us to Jesus here in these verses. So look at me, with me once again at verses 19 through 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ and he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Oh Behold the exalted Christ. Though we are waiting for Christ's return, we are not waiting for Christ to reign. He reigns now in perfect power and majesty. And notice the dimensions of his reign, of his power put forward in this prayer. Verse 19, it is immeasurable and it is mighty. It is boundless and knows no end. It is deeper than the deepest ocean and it is wider than any sea. This power is immeasurable and it isn't a power that is aimless, but it is aimed toward the church, toward the saints, those who believe. That's what Paul says here in this passage. It is displayed toward and for the church. I was recently watching The Wizard of Oz with our kids, and I was struck at the scene when Dorothy and the team finally arrive at the Emerald City, and they are standing before the great and powerful Oz, and they find out that The Wizard of Oz is merely a man behind a curtain, speaking into a microphone, projecting a large image of himself and using 4th of July grade pyrotechnics and lighting to make him seem more powerful than he really is. His power is measurable. His power is fake. But God's power is the opposite. For God is not cowering behind a curtain, even in the darkest of our circumstances. He is not cowering behind a curtain, No, he has fully and ultimately revealed his power in and through the Son, Jesus. He is the revelation of God's immeasurable power. That's what we see in verse 20. The power of God was revealed through the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. If you want to see the power of God, then look no further than the resurrection of Jesus. And the gift of the resurrection was not only given once, but it is given continually in the life of the church. For every day, Christ rises from the dead. Every day, Christ rises. He's resurrected in the lives of those who are living out the gospel in ongoing repentance and faith. And if you're here this morning and do not know this Christ, if you don't know this hope, this power, then hear this. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, That whoever believes in him will not die, but will have eternal life. This is the truth and the hope of the gospel. That Christ came to this earth, that he suffered on a cross, and he died, taking the penalty for your sin and for my sin upon himself. But then three days later, he was resurrected in power and glory, reigning in victory over sin and death. And all of those who repent of their sin and turn toward him in faith and belief are given life everlasting. 
and will inevitably grow. Inevitably grow, as Paul says here, in faith and love for the church. If you have questions about this, I would love to talk with you. After the service, I'll be standing in the back and I would love to talk with you about hope in the gospel. The power of the gospel and what it is to walk in repentance and faith. But make make no mistake, church, the empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus is the historical picture of God's great power. When Christ was raised from the dead in victory over sin and death, but his power doesn't stop there. Didn't stop there just at the resurrection. We read in Mark 16, verse 19, that later, after Jesus was seen and had spoken to the apostles and many others, he was taken up into heaven, and what did he do? What does the text say? He sat down at the right hand of God. In that moment, Christ was enthroned as he sat down in the heavens to rule and to reign. And as it says in verse 21, he is far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, and above every name that is named. Not only in this present age, this church age between Christ's first coming and his second, but the eternal age that is to come, as it says in verse 21. Did you notice the key word there in this verse? It's all. Jesus doesn't have a partial rule. He has a perfect rule over all. For as it says in verse 22, God has put all, there's that word again, all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. This verse, this prayer is a New Testament fulfillment of that psalm that Ryan read earlier. We heard read in that psalm that the Lord said to my Lord, or the Father said to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Beloved, all things, including all of God's enemies, are being made Christ's footstool now. This is being fulfilled now in and through the power of Christ, which is revealed through the local church. Well, Pressing on and looking at verses 22 and 23 in Ephesians 1, did you notice that God has put all things under his feet and gave him, made him head over all things to the church or for the sake of the church? What an interesting expression. Just as God's power is displayed toward the church, as we read, as we read in verse 19, Christ has been made over all things for the church which is his body, the fullness of Christ, who fills all in all. Over the course of church history, these two verses have been interpreted in a variety of different ways. Some have seen the church as completing Christ or filling up something that is lacking in him. This has been titled by some, Incarnational Ministry. Some have said that because Christ is the true and better prophet, priest and king over the church and the world, which he is, then the church is to also fulfill a prophetic, priestly, and kingly role over the church and the world. And yes, to be clear, we do have a priestly role. We're called the kingdom of priests in First Peter. We have a priestly role. We also have a kingly role. We've been been given dominion as vice regents over 
the earth. You can go back and read Genesis 1 through 3 to see that. We also see our kingly role play out in the local church, which is the kingdom of God here on earth, an embassy, an outpost of the kingdom of God. And that kingly role is worked out as members of the church. But ultimately, unlike Christ, the church is not a prophet of new truth, but merely a witness, right? The church is not a sacrifice or mediator for others, but instead we are the sinful recipient of Christ's work. We are not ultimately the king, but rather the king's willing servant. Yes, the church is the hands and feet of Christ, but Christ is the head over all things in the world, in the church, and in heaven. Christ is head over the world and the church, the world by dominion and the church by union. And Jesus is the fountain of all power, toured and for the church. And because of this, the church has nothing to fear. The gates of hell will never prevail against the church because we have an all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, and all-glorious king. And he reigns and has been exalted for the sake of the church, and he fills the church. And because of this truth, the church fills all in all as the manifold witness of God's power, goodness, and glory. And we're going to look at that more in the coming weeks. Isn't that incredible? Does it seem too good to be true? May this prayer be a challenge to us. We far too often have a low view of Christ and an extremely low view of the church. We far too often have a low view of Christ and a low view of the church. So may we heed Paul's words and have and take part in having a higher view of Christ and a higher view of the local church, just as Paul does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, when the darkness is closing in and we are doubtful, we should look to this prayer of benediction and intercession and exaltation and pray it before our great and powerful God, knowing that by his word and by his spirit, we can truly know God know the hope that we have in Christ and know the power of God. And when we know these things and we pray these things, we actually pray the words of God himself back to him. What an incredible privilege. What an incredible opportunity to be given the words of prayer, the words of life right here in the word of God. Well, we should conclude. In these verses, Paul has ultimately shown us that Christian prayer is filled with benediction, it's filled with intercession, and it's filled with exaltation of Christ. In these verses, Paul has given us the words of prayer. He has given us the posture and the pattern for prayer. He has shown us that in the Christian life, praise and prayer go together. They go hand in hand. And church, this is why we have a pastoral prayer every week. This is why we pray together every week. For when we gather, we pray in accordance with God's word and in accordance with the prayers that he has given us with thanksgiving and hope. So what is your posture 
toward God and the church. What is your prayer for the church? Paul has given us a model for how to pray. May it motivate us to thankful and faithful benediction, intercession, and an ever-growing exaltation of our King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for the word, for Christ. We praise you for your word revealed in Scripture. Lord, we ask that you would convict us and that you would change us by your word and spirit and that that would come out and be revealed in our faith and love for one another and our prayers for the church. We thank you for your word and we thank you for your son. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.